From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Low-wage jobs carry more occupational health and safety risks for workers than higher-paying jobs. Jeanette Zeckler, Director of Research and Special Projects for the Occupational Health Clinical Centers at Upstate, has been involved in the low-wage workers' health project since 2013. It's a project with multiple phases that has 559 participating low-wage workers. Jeanette is here to talk about her findings. Welcome, Jeanette. Hello. Thanks for being here. Last time you were here, um, you told us that from 30 to 38% of low-wage workers have pain that they believe is connected to their jobs, mostly musculoskeletal problems, aching feet, uh, backs, knees, headaches, and that most of these workers don't complain because they don't want to risk losing their jobs. Does this continue to be a problem today? Yes, we continue to find uh, similar levels of, of symptoms that people connect to their work. We really do. So what types of um, jobs are we connecting these to? Every, every sector in our economy has low-wage jobs that are either entry-level or just lower-skilled, de-skilled jobs. So we're talking about the people who do the very basics in each field, the cleaners, the clerical workers, the uh, restaurant workers. We'll speak with uh, home health aides, healthcare workers at you know very basic levels, those sorts of workers that are doing uh, retail also, retail cashiers. They're doing the most basic level work in our society. Okay, and that's across industries. Mm -hmm. Let's remind um, listeners what low wage means. What we use is the living wage concept where we consider people to be working with low wages when they can't make a living um, without government help. And in Onondaga County, that's usually between $14 and $15 an hour as just a basic benchmark. And in terms of the characteristics of low-wage workers, we're not talking about um, kids with summer jobs. Right. A lot of these jobs used to be you know, taken up by people who just needed a little bit of extra discretionary income to supplement their families. But what we're finding now is that people across the age lifespan are using these jobs as a way to make a living or an attempt to make a living. And many of these jobs just aren't suited um, for that purpose, really. They have sort of no pathway or little opportunity for pathways. Okay. So tell me about the project methods that you've used in, in this. I think what um, drives me sometimes are the central features of our project methods, which revolve around making dialogues with with adult working people in the community who can then speak back to us. Our activities involve um, innovative activities like body mapping or hazard mapping, where we go and ask them to make pictures of their workplaces and tell us what it's like to work there. And then we interact with some of what we know about workplace health and those kind of interactive sessions are the bedrock of, of what we've found. And that's how we are able to raise the workers' voices and hear from them what their struggles are. And so, you, I mean, businesses must be in on this, too. They must accept you into... How we connect mostly is through community-based organizations that are already serving low-wage workers for another reason. So employers directly haven't been central. It's been more like if there's a community um, um, literacy folks or job placement folks, perhaps um, refugees settling agencies, um, community centers, churches. Those are places where people with low wages may be congregating already, and we go into the city and find where they're already meeting and then engage them in, in those places. Um, so what have you found so far in, um, in this third, third phase now that you've 
completed. In the, in the third phase, we just really tried to characterize the work conditions. So we're learning about what kind of exposures or problems that arise in the workplace that threaten health uh, happen. So for a hairstylist, for example, she may be exposed to a number of chemicals that um, are in her workplace, or perhaps people are working long hours in which they have to stand for long periods of time. Um, we, we see people working in healthcare having a struggle trying to engage in safe patient handling. They are having difficulty lifting people. Um, or even just the, the sheer amount of work, the demand of the workload on people versus what they really are able to accomplish. Um, so the body wears out if it's overtaxed, right? So a lot of times that's what we're seeing. Um, and many people try to work two jobs, and then that ends up leading to a certain kind of exhaustion that's really hard to exactly make um, measurements of, but you can kind of see the way people are being sort of used up and worn out over time. Well, some of these jobs, by definition, I mean, they're, they're labor, mm -hmm. right? They're strenuous and they're, I mean... Some are, and some are really boring and, and struggle with an emotional component. Say you are a, um, in a call center where you're going to accept angry phone calls, you know, phone calls from angry people all day long. It's not exactly physically demanding, but you may be in sort of a, a dank office where the air quality isn't so good, and now you're constantly dealing with the stress of the people on the phone combined with the stress of your supervisor combined with your coworker stress. And so sometimes work-related stress and the emotional toll that the jobs take is more of a feature than, say, the actual physical labor. I mean, that's kind of what a lot of service sector jobs bring, and in healthcare also is a similar thing, although there is some physicalness to um, a lot of the um, you know, certified nursing assistants and home health aides have a physical component too. Sure. Um, also, people are exposed to cleaning agents more than you might think. Uh, so cleaners are using chem uh, pretty strong chemicals in hospitals and large um, facilities. So we might think we lead a chemical-free uh, life ar around us, but we're not quite noticing. And that's really a feature of the low-wage work. We're not always noticing what low-wage workers are going through. They're marginalized. They're often invisible, kind of looked right through. And we're not um, taking into consideration that their jobs may have dangers. And there's a low commitment to training often on the part of the employers. So has anything surprised you um, about work conditions when, when you started looking into this? Were there any surprises for you? I think one of the most disappointing surprises is the... Um, strong presence still of racism and discrimination on the job. Um, it, it's still such an, a constant factor for, for many workers, um, many, many stories of unfair labor practices that are hard to actually make a case of, right? They're borderline or and they, people feel the, the stigma or the sense of being discriminated against pretty strongly. So that was a surprise to me. I think I was not surprised to find that some jobs are dangerous and people aren't quite aware of what they're going to be exposed to. They're not, they're not um, trained up front. It's not as up front, you know, what the kind of conditions they're going to be in. And so that not knowing part is what is difficult for workers to cope with. If they're just not aware, they're not made aware of what potential dangers they may find on the job, they're not able to prevent uh, injury or illness from occurring. Okay, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Jeanette Zeckler. She's Director of Research and Special Projects for the Occupational Health Clinical Centers at Upstate. 
Um, have you come up with solutions or do you have um, any recommendations? Either immediate yeah, or long term? we're working on recommendations all the time, and very often they arise from specific workers' problems that are brought forward. And I think that, you know, wait, we're, you making low wages in and of itself is a health hazard. Um, many of the studies are showing, and you can see it clearly. Um, as we talk about concentrated poverty in Syracuse, for example, the state of low wages is particularly frustrating. But on top of that, um, I think the, one of the quickest and easiest ways that we can address these problems are to concentrate on the fact that workers have a right to be trained uh, on the job and to know ahead of time, you know, the exposures they're going to face and how to protect themselves. And that um, is very frequently glossed over. And so though we can put more attention on that. And also, um, you know, enforcing existing regulations would be um, something we'd like to see um, more strongly and consistently applied. I think we have um, OSHA is underfunded. So with an agency that can't possibly be in all these workplaces, in our city, for example, they can't do the kinds of inspections that sometimes people imagine are going on. The people often say to me, well, don't we have OSHA? Don't we have, like, regulations in place? And we may have many on the books, but very often um, things are going under the radar and people aren't, you know, those workplaces aren't being um, examined for health. So we have to think about ways to bring that um, to light and to um, raise awareness about the health of people at work. So would, would raising the wage for the same work, would that do anything to help improve health? I would think... Um, most of us who work in this field believe that raising wages is a just and reasonable um, thing to do because it's just a matter of dignity. People are working for, um, you know, wages that can't support their health, can't support their their lives, and very basic ways. We're not talking about vacations or extras. We're talking about, you know, food on the table, clothing, educational opportunity. Uh, transportation is a big important problem, also child care. So if we can start shoring up some of those things with decent wages, and I would also add um, jobs that have some kind of interesting nature. So people often report they'd like to be learning more on the job. They'd like to be having a job with a little bit more complexity and that they feel they could rise to that, but then the opportunity isn't there. So if we could begin to create quality jobs then, uh, that would really go a long way, I think, toward the physical and mental health of, of workers. And most of these jobs don't include health insurance coverage either. So that's, that's correct. I mean, that's, you know, they will keep people, very often people are kept at a 35-hour or 30-hour um, status so that they have part-time status so they never achieve the ability to get benefits. And if they do have the ability to get benefits, they're often too expensive for them to um, undertake. So that is another um, serious problem, of course. All right. When you talk about workers needing to know their rights, um, what rights are you talking about? What can they do? Um, mm -hmm. Because I mean, if they fear losing their job by complaining. Right. So there's two components to knowing your rights. One component is knowing what they are. And what they are, in a nutshell, is that they have the right to a healthy and safe workplace under the OSHA Act 1970. And so it is the employer's responsibility to provide that. And so they have a basic right to that. They have a right to know what materials they're using and to know um, more about the health and safety of those um, materials and chemicals or whatever it is that occurs on the job. They also have the right to refuse dangerous work. 
So if they arrive at work and something is dangerous, such as there's a violent customer at their cash registers or there is an imminent um, odor you know, emanating from somewhere, they have a right to go to, the, to their supervisor and say that this is a dangerous situation. I'm willing to stay and work, but I find that this is you know, going to impact my health. And people often need to know how to navigate some of those rights. So the two components are knowing what those rights might be, also how would I use them? In what way would I be approaching? How would be, what is the most effective strategy for approaching your employer when you have a concern about your health at work? Good point. So those two things are components of what we try to help people know. What would you do next? And what's really reasonable, given that you may fear for your retaliation? Sure, sure. Well, what are the next steps of this project? What's the next phase? Well, this project has actually moved on and um we began to expand in other counties. So we received some funding from the New York State Department of Labor to expand to the southern tier and to the north country. And those expansions, and also in the capital district, those expansions are helping us learn more, helping us reach more um, workers, and helping us understand some of the subsets of workers that we might, might want to take a focus on. Um, so as we run into problems, we can look at specific occupations and delve more deeply into what what those occupations' problems might be, such as home health age, which is the fastest-growing low-wage occupation, or hairstylists who are under um, new, constantly having new chemicals that they're exposed to, and they're not really aware of the potential health impacts that are faced that they face. Um, also, retail uh, folks are, you know, struggling with how much they have to stand in one place and are socially isolated. So, as we can attack those particular problems. We can uh, help workers with solutions, often, again, revolving around training, getting better training, getting better communication uh, skills in sort of how to approach management when there's problems on the, on the job. Wow. Well, thank you for being here. My guest has been Occupational Health Clinical Center's Director of Research and Special Projects, Jeanette Zeckler. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.